0: You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I had
1: been out, uh, and if I'm completely candid, uh, doing a three-day party run, you know, kind of a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning uh, nonstop party adventure, and I came back home to my condo and my door had been kicked in.
0: My guest today is named Tracy Brinkman. He is the host of Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. He's here to tell us about his journey from rock bottom and drug addiction and divorce to success in corporate America. Welcome to the show, Tracy.
1: All right. Well, me, I am the humble Tracy Brinkman, and uh, I was lucky enough, my dad was in the military. And uh, we, uh, like I was sharing with you earlier, we moved probably every two or three years. So that, that builds me in the luck of being able to say I grew up knowing a lot of the United States and uh, we also spent a number of years over in germany so i got to learn a lot about people different you know different religions different personality types different ethnicities the whole nine yards and then you know being you know uh, associated with the military you know you even have that even more concentrated within the bases that we, uh, we we lived in across the years so i can't say that i grew up with this one mindset of you know what people are like. I was lucky enough to see a diverse set of folks. And uh, my dad finally retired after about 23 years. So that would have been early teens for me. We settled into Southern California. And now my life goes from this, I'll call it very structured, you know, things happen at a time, uh, not militaristic as a whole, but certainly you're, you're living a military lifestyle in, in that family life to probably the most liberal of places on the planet, let alone in the United States and all these new freedoms. And, uh, you know, I started making some, uh, I'll call them questionable choices at best, uh, associating with some folks I probably wouldn't have associated before and, you know, just getting crazy as a teen. So, you know, you're going to get crazy as a teen anyway. It's just kind of that fun part of growing up as a as a teen boy. Uh, But then you start doing the crazier things like, oh, let's go race cars and, you know, let's Let's uh, let's toy with some drugs and what have you. And uh, it got to a point where it's like, you know, I'm going to have to uh, get away from this. And I joined the service and uh, requested to go to Germany. So I went over to Europe for, you know, my tour of duty. And then when I got out of the service, I came back to Southern California and started a little business. Uh, This would have been right as the dot-com boom was happening. And I started a a computer consulting business and started bringing in a a pretty good coin, you could say. Uh, But this gave me the opportunity to start going back down the path I was on oh gosh six years prior before I left to join the service and uh, uh, now I had money in the pocket and uh, I started uh, toying with the drug arena uh, speed mostly was the uh, the drug of choice for me so I was out doing the pool circuit you know doing some speed having a good time and uh, got hooked pretty hard pretty fast to the point where you know I started selling it to support my habit totally neglected my my business and my customers and what have you at that point, and for about two, three years was uh, deep into the seedy side of uh, the meth scene in Southern California. And uh, there and I don't know how deep we want to go into this but certainly uh, the the ending point for me after a couple of years was uh, I had been out uh, and if I'm completely candid uh, doing a three-day party run you know kind of a Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday morning uh, nonstop party adventure and I, I came back home to my condo and my door had been kicked in and I thought at first it had been kicked in by you know criminals you know you're you're hanging out with that type of folks, it's not unlikely you may fall prey to some of them. And, uh, but when I went inside, it became evident that my door had been kicked in by the police, 5-0 had kicked in my door, not uh, criminals, because it was like you see in the movies. You know, stuff was strewn all over the place. Uh, The furniture was in disarray. There was mashed potatoes, uh, you know, instant potatoes and cereal dumped out on the counter and in the sink as they were looking for things. Uh, So I... Clearly had gotten the attention of folks I didn't want to have the attention of. And that was my uh, shining moment. And I say shining moment because if it had just been me, I may have continued on the path thinking, oh, that's all right. I can beat this. I'm smarter than these guys. But uh, uh, I had a moment of clarity because I had a four month old daughter at that point in time. And it was no longer my life that I was uh, putting at risk, it was hers as well. So it became that, uh, you know, tap on the shoulder. We'll call it an angelic tap on the shoulder. And uh, I decided to clean up my act and clean up my life and. God you know thank the heavens and or whoever you may believe in uh, thank the powers above i had an awesome set of parents and a very supportive uh, i call him my brother we had known each other since our early teen years and uh, you know uh, i called him my brother till he passed away just a few years ago so they helped me um, in getting in cleaned up and, and what have you. So that's the uh, that's probably one of the, uh, the, the big stories that came into my recovery piece. I'm unsure sure if there was anywhere you wanted to root around in that, uh, you know, more uh, questions about it.
0: That sounds really intense. Did the police find anything? Did you get charged or was that more of a wake up call for you?
1: It was, uh, it was, a it was a little of both. I didn't get any charges. Uh, what, what, here's what kind of happened to tell the rest of that, uh, that piece of the story. So, you know, obviously starting to shuffle things around and trying to clean up the home a bit. And when I came home, it was, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, it was Oh, dark 30 in the morning. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, um, you know, shuffling around. I was still pretty wired and awake, um, from the, the speed I was doing. And, uh, as I was moving around the house, uh, you know, knock comes on the door, and I open the door, and two gentlemen introduce themselves as uh, detectives, and you know, they come on in, and they're you know asking me about uh, what happened, who I was, et cetera, et cetera, and did I have any ID? So, if I take a step back, before I went on this three-day party binge, I had uh, gone out with a friend of mine, and uh, we went to the, sh- the the firing range, and uh, we had a you know, we, he is a, a big gun advocate. I didn't have any weapons at the time in my home, thank goodness, with the raid, right? Um, but we had been out to the firing range, and I asked if I could hold his guns because I wanted to go back to the firing range the next day or so. And so I had him in my briefcase. And so when these these uh, detective asked me for my ID, I said, yeah, sure, it's right over here in this briefcase. And I wasn't thinking anything about it. I walk over, I open the briefcase, and as soon as I open the briefcase, they see them. And it was a a, it was a 38 and a a 357 was in there. And, you know, one one guy hollers gun to his partner as he's launching himself in the air to tackle me onto the couch and quickly handcuff my hands behind my back. And and I hold no grudge about this, because if I was a police officer who had been who was investigating a potential, you know, drug drug. You know, drug dealer's home, and this guy opens up a briefcase, and there are two weapons in there. I think I would have reacted the exact same way. Uh, so I get hauled down to the um, at the police station, and you know they a- they were asking some very knowledgeable questions. They knew a lot about my life at that point. But I don't think they knew for sure. They were asking the questions of, you know, is this person – do you know this person? Do you know that person? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I know that person, but I'm like, no, uh, no you know, kind of thing. And uh, they told me that the weapons had been reported stolen, and, uh, you know, the, the gentleman who was a, a good friend of mine, Gets called down to the police station, and tells the police, "Oh, that's right. I forgot. Tracy um, was carrying those for me because we were going to go back to the gun range, and so those stolen weapon charges were, you know, dropped as uh, that was recanted." But the, the backstory behind that was uh, the gentleman who owned the weapons had heard through the grapevine that someone had ratted me out. So he called the weapons in stolen, and that way he was disconnected from me because, you know, he wasn't involved in that, that life. You know, right? He wasn't doing anything, and uh, so hearing that through the grapevine, he was trying to protect his family. And so once those charges were dropped and, you know, everything else, I probably spent, you know – I don't know 18 hours in that uh in that precinct they just let me go and i and i walked home and that was you know so that comes to the second part of your question it was a very eye-opening moment that okay not only did these guys kick open my door but they really knew a lot about what i was involved in and so if i stayed involved it was probably not a good idea And uh, hence, like I said earlier, I made that decision along with the fact that, you know, I had the newborn daughter uh, that was in the mix that would definitely be impacted uh, the rest of her life.
0: All right. So that leads me to my next question. Sure. Did you stop cold turkey? Did you go to rehab? Did you do a detox? What does that look like?
1: I I stopped cold turkey. I literally, you know, uh, packed up uh, a suitcase full of clothes and everything for my daughter and went to my mom and dad's house. You know, I won't say literally on my knees, but pleading for their help. Uh, I told them, I said, I need to get off this uh, these drugs now. I told her that if mom, if I don't do any drugs, I'm going to be sleeping probably for two, three, four days straight. And I need someone to keep an eye on my daughter. And then of course I'm going to need to rebuild my life and, you know, get a job and and what have you. And the only way I felt I could do that was completely disconnected from anyone that, uh, you know, I had been associating with before. And while they only lived, about 20 miles away, it was, it may have been on the other side of the world because those two worlds were so uh, separate from one another that I knew being, you know, being that far away uh, worldwide, not to, you know, uh, not by miles, would certainly lend to my uh, recovery. And I did. I mean, I probably slept. Almost three days straight, you know, getting up for the occasional meal and, uh, you know, body relief. But, uh, you know, my, like I said, my parents were amazing and very supportive to this. They they showed me no remorse for what I had put myself through. And trust me, I heard plenty of earfuls, especially from my dad, about risking my daughter's life. My dad was very pro-family and, and thank God for that because that's probably what triggered my decision when the you know when I was walking home from the precinct of oh my god my family my daughter right uh, that was probably ringing inside me because he had stilled that uh, it within me uh, during my uh, years growing up
0: all right so you said you went to your parents' house you got cleaned up you stopped using drugs what are you doing in that time period what's going on in your life and then maybe we could jump to What's going on now in your life, and what your life looks like today? Oh my gosh, so much better! Before we fast forward, though, I um I did
1: want to share one piece of the recovery process for me that I think uh, was kind of important to the story. Is uh, um you know I I knew I had this. I'll call it. Profitable skill set because, like I said before, this uh, adventure, this endeavor, right, this adventure into the dark side started. You know, I was doing computer programming, so you know, back then, computer programming skills were, uh, you know, all all the rave. And uh, I actually didn't feel, and I'm doing air quotes, although you can't see it, worthy of putting myself back out there. It's like, hey, Mister, you know, Mister potential clients, I could come in here and I could program your computers, and they could be looking at me like didn't I just see you down at the local bar doing lines off some girl's belly, you know what I'm saying? So uh, I had this, I have this self-worth issue that I was dealing with, even, even though, you know, a I'll say a couple of weeks or a month into it, you know, I was physically feeling physically much better. I was looking physically much better because obviously uh, when this whole uh, recovery part started, you know, I was all with, you know, withdrawn and my eyes were sunken in. I'd lost crazy amounts of weight because you don't eat worth beans when you're doing that kind of of a drug. So, you know, I was starting to feel better and I was starting to look better. But, you know, mentally, I had, you know, my self-worth had taken a kick to the head by a Clydesdale. And uh, so I went out there, the the process of me rebuilding myself uh, was literally going out and doing, I'll call them day jobs. You know, I was a filing clerk for a business part time. I went out and did warehouse work. And, and trust me, for those that do that kind of work on an ongoing basis, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying at that time, I, I had the skill set to do something different, so I, I didn't feel worthy of it. So now I'm just putting myself out there saying, I'm going to do something to start building my, my self-confidence to feel like, all right, I'm worthy of doing something. And uh, it worked. I mean, after about, I would say six, nine months of just getting out there and doing work. On a daily basis, you know, whether it's moving furniture around or filing, doing accounting for some, you know, firm for a, a you know, temporary staffing agency, um, it made me feel better about who I was, and that gave me the confidence to go out and put myself back out into the marketplace. And I ended up landing a, a, a pretty good, and I call it an entry level role with the Coca Cola company, which made me feel hugely. Um, better um, emotionally as well as, you know, professionally. So now I was working with this top-notch company and I just threw myself into my job and that started, you know, obviously rebuilding that confidence. And I used my computer skills to literally program the computer to help me do my job at the time. And it wasn't a a glamorous job. It was a, a parts expediter and for those that don't know, you know, you've all seen the Coca-Cola vans driving around that they service all the fountain accounts in any city you might live in. So in Southern California, they probably had 50 of those vans driving around. So it was my job to make sure all of those vans were stocked with the right parts. So when they came to your restaurant or whatever to service your account, they wouldn't have to wait for parts except for extenuating circumstances. They could just service it off the van and get you pouring Coca-Cola product, which made us money, right? Um, And that role ended up moving me to Atlanta, which was hugely uh, opportunistic because obviously the best way to uh, grow within a company of that, uh, that scale is to be at their headquarters. And that's where their headquarters is in Atlanta. And that started me on my corporate America, I'll call it rocket ride, probably saw five promotions over the next four or five years as I started climbing up the planning marketing arm of uh, Coca-Cola North America. So that kind of answers your question at the same time because uh, I, I started Believing in myself again, in my skill sets, learning an entirely new set of skills when it came to marketing in corporate America and doing logistics planning and uh, inventory management. And, you know, I ended up getting put into a management role within the organization. So now I'm I'm leading people, which oddly enough was a lot easier to do because of my previous experience Uh, on the dark side, you're, you know, leading people in that environment as well when you were uh, doing what I was doing, but obviously it's not the same, right. But some of the same skills apply, right. You need to get people to do things. You, you learn how to motivate them using, you know, uh, tactics and strategies. I was just learning the uh, far better tactics and strategies now. So, I mean, and then to finish answering your question, you know, my life is far better now. I'm I'm married an amazing woman, about four- four years ago. Now we're working on year four, uh, who that I met, uh, probably about six years ago. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're probably so much alike and just enough different to keep things interesting. Um, uh, I've got three amazing kids in my life and, uh, you know, living a reasonably good home, uh, uh you know, uh, doing entrepreneurial things while still holding a, a day job. Uh, I, I think I'm living the American dream,
0: uh, even bouncing back from, you know the american nightmare i know before we started recording you told me a little bit about your daughter i wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about that chapter in your life or if you wanted to skip over that
1: no i think that's a, um it's kind of a sidebar on the same topic so um you know when i decided to get out of uh, the drug scene um the lady at the time who was my uh, my girlfriend and the the mother of my daughter uh, I, you know, she came along with me, and and the, the quote unquote deal was the arrangement was all right. we're getting off this, we're getting out of the drug scene. Um, if you're going to continue to do, do drugs, that is not going to work, and you're not going to be a part of my life, which means you're not going to be a part of this little girl's life, and that probably worked for I don't know. Three, four months, and she started, uh, you know, re-dabbling back into the drug scene. I think it was a little harder for her because um, by profession, she was a barmaid, you know, so she was working in, in bars and, uh, you know... Th- and especially in southern california about any bar you could go into it was easy to you know find any kind of drug be it marijuana or speed or cocaine or whatever you know back then so it was it, it, for me i totally disconnected from this you know the scene like i said and all the people around it uh and brought her with but here she was reimmersing herself into it and that's you know if you if you've been down that path it's really difficult to associate with you know those kind of folks and still stay away especially when you're early on in your recovery so um you know she end up going back in to the scene and uh, you know that gets her ousted out of my life and then you know so there's the whole uh, court battle we end up going through for custody, for the rights of my daughter and uh, you know luckily, I could prove my sobriety and uh, she helped prove her non-sobriety. I mean, this was almost like a scene for a movie, right? So we're, we're walking in to the courthouse and I say we and when I say that, it's me, my mother and my father, and my little girl at this point who's probably right around a year old now and uh, so we're in there and our lawyers there. And we're sitting at the table, and the the mom uh, was late, and we're waiting. We're called up, and we're waiting. And the judge is like, is she going to show up? All of a sudden, we hear these, and this is no exaggeration, the clicking of high heels on the marble floor of the courtroom. And I turn and look over my shoulder, and if I could dress her any more like a Streetwalker. I I don't want to be rude, but I I just I want to give people a picture. You know, it was a skin-tight dress that stopped way too high on the thighs, probably four-inch high heels, um, a preponderance of makeup, and uh, you know, walking in looking like that. I'm thinking, oh my God, how could you present yourself like that to the court? And you know, uh, as I think about it right now, which probably helped me in the process that this is not the image you want someone even a mother presented with and then she was clearly you know a little spun on the her drug of choice at the time which you know made the i think the judge's decision a whole lot easier uh you know it awarded me full physical custody and then gave her you know uh what is that called? Uh, supervised visits, uh, for, you know, every other weekend. And then over that time, she, you know, got deeper and deeper into things. So it was, You know, represented to the courts that uh, she was not staying away. She wasn't being um, uh, clean and sober. So that gave me full of both, which was perfect because that was right about the time I had uh, got my role. The role I was doing at the the Coca-Cola company was actually moved to Atlanta. And so I was able to get that. And uh, as part of that move, I had a, a new lady in my life, and uh, so she came out to, to uh, Atlanta after we were married, and she stumbled into the drug scene in Atlanta. and uh, Or excuse me, let me back up. She, she stumbled back into the drug scene in California right about the time our, which would be my second daughter, uh, was going to be born, and literally... Um, Did speed while she was pregnant, which caused some issues with the pregnancy itself, which caused uh, um, Krista to be born with a distended abdomen. And, oh my goodness, uh, and and for those that don't know, a distended abdomen, it, if you picture a cliche beer drinker with, uh, and I, I say that like a man, right, with that big old belly hanging up over his lap as he's tossing back, you know, uh, way too many beers, that's what she came out um, looking like. And what had happened is one of the uh, the arteries didn't fully develop and it didn't, so that didn't provide the blood supply to her small intestine, so she came out with a blocked intestine, and only about twenty three centimeters of small intestine were when usually you're born with i think it's over a hundred right so now she didn't have enough small intestine to sustain life because that's where all the nutrition is absorbed uh through the uh, through the processing of the food uh so in the first six uh, excuse me three months of life, she went through six pretty major operations you know, trying to, uh, stabilize her life, give her enough small bowel to, uh, to absorb nutrition, to be self-sustaining. Uh, one of the operations installed what's called a TPN line, a total parental nutrition line. Uh, literally if you could picture, you know, a, a hose, you know, a small, uh, IV tube going in right above where your heart is at, uh, and it would feed in basically the raw nutrients that you, you or anyone would need to sustain life. Well. Uh, the body being the amazing tool that is uh, in Krista, said, okay, well, if you're going to be giving me these raw nutrients, you don't need a filter. So I'm going to go ahead and let this uh, liver deteriorate. So now she needs a liver and small bowel transplant. And uh, so we go through getting her all stabilized. The doctors did an, an amazing job at the Children's Hospital in Atlanta, getting her all stabilized and ready to go and getting her on the organ donor list in All you can do at that point is wait and and hope. And we had this this beeper that was issued to us saying that if this beeper goes off, grab your pre-packed bag and get to the hospital because, you know, there's a short timeline by which you can have these organs processed and transplanted into, and that beeper went off one time. And uh, anyone who's, uh, you know, uh, been a mother or a father and, you know, they're, they don't know when the due date is and they just know the, you know, basic timeline, you know, they've got all those bags pre-packed and it's probably sitting uh, by the door, which we did, we had them sitting in a little closet right there by the front door. And, you know, I think I broke every land speed law, <laughs> physically possible as I was driving towards the hospital after that beeper went off. And unfortunately, the uh, uh, the donor, uh, it was a, a, a youngster, I believe it was a young boy, if I remember correctly, um, unfortunately had been um, the victim of abuse and the damage in the, the potential donor of the organs was too severe. So uh, it was a, ended up being a false alarm as a result. So now I'm, you know, scared for Krista, but I'm really angry for what had happened to this young man, right? So that could have potentially saved my child's life. So you're, you got all these emotions going on. You're, you're happy that, you know, uh, it, it didn't happen. You're sad that it didn't happen. It it was kind of this crazy tumultuous time. And uh, uh, after after that uh, alarm, false alarm, They said uh, the best place for Krista to have this operation uh, would be in Pittsburgh. And mind you, like I said, uh, we're still down in Atlanta. So mom and Krista move up to... uh Pittsburgh. And uh, thank goodness for places like the Ronald McDonald House, um, because uh, the baby obviously was staying in the hospital a lot of the time, but mom uh, didn't have uh, a a place to live. And we didn't have the means by which to afford two homes. So, uh, you know, Ronald McDonald House steps in and they're, you know, I think two blocks away from the hospital. And, uh, you know, me and uh, my oldest daughter uh, from the previous story are going up there on occasion, you know, every weekend or two to, to visit. And, uh, you know, and anyone who's a parent will know what I'm about to say. Uh, there was one weekend that I walked into Krista's hospital room. And you just, it was just something wasn't right. And, and mind you, she's, you know, almost 18 months old at this point, And she's been going through this since day one. So, you know, my baseline for her being okay is different than you know anyone who has a quote-unquote normal child right but even still i walked in it's like god there's just something wrong and uh, about uh, i want to say it was three four weeks prior to that uh krista had uh, one of the candy stripers or nurse's assistants had uh, dropped krista and she landed on her head so her body is fighting this hematoma on her skull. All the while, you know, her body is already in a weakened state, so she had been deteriorating a bit over the past three weeks. But this one weekend, like I said, I walked in, it was just something gnawing at me, that is something really wrong. And so I pull the doctor aside, and I'm asking, hey, if the organs were available right now, do you think she would survive the operation? I got a lot of doctor speak, you know, him hauling around and, and no joke, grabbed him by the, 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 you know, the collar of his, probably a sleeve of his coat and pulled him into a, a janitor's closet in the hallway and closed the door. I said, look, it's just you and me, right? No hospital administrators, no insurance companies, just two people talking about the life of my daughter. And I finally got the answer and he didn't believe she would survive and okay, well, not the answer I wanted to hear, but certainly now uh, I'm, I'm informed, right? Which led me to my next question. Do you think she will, her health would improve to the point where she would survive? And eventually the answer came out that I didn't believe that she would be able to regain enough physical stamina or health, whatever you want to call it, to survive the operation. And so at this point you know she's on a respirator uh, because of deteriorating health issues i I mentioned earlier so the question becomes you know uh, of us as parents do we leave her on the respirator or not and anyone who's faced with this decision it's very personal and whatever decision they've made or will make in their lifetime it is just that it's very personal but for me it felt like if i was going to keep her here Uh, On Machines Keeping Her Alive, I'd be keeping her here for me. And that would be selfish. And I had spent enough time being selfish in those dark drug-induced days, almost risking the life of my uh, now oldest daughter. So, you know, for me, the decision was pretty easy. To Well, not easy, but it was a lot more logical to not be selfish and keep her there for me while she's in pain. And so we disconnected the machines, uh, wrapped her up in her favorite blanket, and I literally, no joke, sat down in the rocking chair that was in her ER room and rocked her to sleep one last time. (laughs) Sorry, getting a little misty-eyed just thinking about it but you know and that's that's good and bad that I got to do that i think it was very good that i got to do that because it gave me the opportunity to tell her in her final time with us all the amazing lessons that she had taught me, you know, how to look at life through different eyes, how to, you know, try to approach each day with a big bright smile on her face, which she did even when we knew she was in pain, she always had a smile on her face and was always trying to check out new things. And she did this thing with her finger, like ET, where she would reach out. And anytime something new was introduced to her, she'd reach out with that one finger and touch it. And once she felt it was safe after touching it, it was like any baby, it was in her mouth or she was eating it or, you know, playing with it, whatever, you know, all these amazing lessons that she taught me in her short time, I got to thank her for those <clears throat> and tell her goodbye. Right. So, you know, that was, you know, emotional, a roller coaster you know dark time number two. and I think having gone through and and gone through successfully uh, my drug addiction and sobriety of that, it helped me not go back because I could easily say, okay, whatever you believe in threw this curveball at me, I don't deserve this I you know i could I could throw all the blame and start saying okay I'm gonna start doing some drugs just to you know uh, just to you know deaden the pain so to speak um but uh, again for me that would have been selfish plus I still had <laughs> my oldest daughter you know looking at me with these big brown eyes going hey daddy what's going on you know and how do you explain death to someone who's probably 4 or 5 you know and, and everything so having gone through that and you know, and recovered from that i think helped me stay on the right path in this uh, next big emotional
0: and traumatic time in my life i can't even begin to imagine what that would be like i'm so sorry for your loss it's a
1: tough one to explain to folks. It, it really is because you know, uh, I I say and I still believe to this day. I mean, I've I've known a lot of people in my fifty plus years on this planet, and I've never disliked someone to the point where I could wish them that level of pain. I there's no one on this planet that I hate so much, and I don't use that word easily. That I would want them to feel that because it's it never goes away, right? I mean, even telling the story, I'm getting wispy-eyed, but it can break you or it can define you. And uh, I tried to make it uh, definitive, right? Uh, I threw myself back into uh, work uh, and and personal development became a huge part of my life. Uh, I learned my I won't say love, but certainly uh, my <laughs> my uh, draw towards public speaking. Because while Krista was going through everything, uh, anyone who would listen, and probably a few people that didn't want to listen, heard about the pros of uh, being an organ donor. So, and after her passing, I continued that uh, that speaking, and as I got into personal development to help me learn more about m- enhancing my mindset and keeping myself from going back to the dark path, you know, not to sound like Star Wars or anything, but um, I started, uh, you know, using those messages on platforms of, you know, 1, 5, 10, 50. You know, I, I've spoken up to uh, uh, 5,000, I believe it was at a doctor and nurse convention. So, you know, I found a number of passions coming out of this, of uh, both pains. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the Magic pivot points for me is every, you know, and I'll be cliche. Every they say every dark cloud has a silver lining, and and I think there's some truth to that. If you're willing to stare into the dark cloud and find what learnings you can glean from them, right? What can what can you glean from having been? Uh, an addict, whatever addiction may be to you, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be you know, sex or pornography or whatever, right? What can you glean out of that uh, after you start down your recovery path? What can I glean out of losing a daughter? Well, gosh, it, it helped me remember all the lessons my dad taught me about how important family is, you know, they're not going to be here forever. Sometimes they'll be here far, you know, forever comes a lot sooner than you think.
0: Man, it sounds like you've been on a difficult road and you've faced a lot of challenges, and I'm just really blown away by your optimism and your positive attitude.
1: I think for me, one of the big ways I've been able to be positive about it is I own it right? I own the fact that nobody made me drink what I was drinking back then. No one made me do the drugs I was doing. No one forced uh, me to roll up a dollar bell and go, right? No one made me do any of that. I, I, I made bad choices and I own them, right? Uh, and I owned the, uh, the dark side. Uh, so not trying to hide from that doesn't make me have to tell fibs or alter stories or, you know, not everyone wants to say, you know what, I used to do drugs as a teenager. I think so many people want to ignore or, you know, hide away from, and that causes some conflict internally. And then that conflict will, you know, it's going to alter how you think it's going to alter your perception of reality and everyone's perception of reality is their reality. So, I think being able to say, yeah, I, I did stupid crap, right? And uh, I've paid a price for that. The person that was in my life that was Krista's mom did stupid crap. And Krista paid a price for that, right? And so we all paid a price for that. So I can't go around blaming God or Allah or the universe or, or the doctors or the drug dealer. I can't blame anyone. Uh, So that makes it a lot easier to say, okay. well, that means more of this stuff is in my control than than not. If I'm blaming someone, then I'm I'm relinquishing that control to someone else. And now I'm fighting for that control. Well, it's inside kind of thing. So that I think that's a huge factor in being a lot more positive about it than uh, than some folks uh, would, would be.
0: I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing your journey with us. In closing, would you like to maybe tell the listeners about your podcast or shout out your social media accounts?
1: I, I definitely would. Thank you so much. Uh, I, like you mentioned earlier, I, I am the host of the, the Dark Horse Entrepreneur podcast, which you can find on any of the uh, the major platforms and a lot of the minor ones as well. But if you don't want to go searching for it, you can certainly uh, go to my website, which is Horse. Horseschooling.com and then uh, there's a podcast tab there. You can check out all the podcasts and it's all focused on uh, you know entrepreneurship and personal development, trying to share
0: some of the lessons I've learned over the years. Tracy, thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Tracy, thank you again for being on the show. Be sure to check out his podcast, Dark Horse Entrepreneur. The links for that as well as his social media and website will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes. Hey guys, I wanted to let you know about an exciting new partnership with Broken Chains Apparel. They're a custom online shirt retailer that designs cool shirts for people in recovery. They want you to be proud of your recovery and wear it boldly. They're offering our listeners a 20% discount. All you have to do is use the promo code recovery at checkout. Go grab your shirts today at brokenchainsapparel.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at brokenchainsapparel.